The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What does Gary Cohn's resignation from the White House mean for the Trump administration and for the former Goldman Sachs executive himself? Italy's election puts outsiders center stage. And do the world's mega mining empires need to do deals? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Anthony Curry. My co-host, Jen Saber, is snowed in in New Jersey. Donald Trump is no stranger to people leaving his White House, but the departure of his chief economic advisor, Gary Cohn, has startled markets more than virtually any other of the exits we've had over the past year. Here to discuss in person what is going on is our Washington correspondent, Chris Bedor, who for some reason came up during a snowstorm. Nice work, Chris. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here. <laughs> so um, let's put this in perspective. Um, Donald Trump's White House has lost, I think I've read, more than 40 people over the past year. But Gary Cohen is the one, certainly that we thought was the most important to leave. But also the markets do seem so as well. What's what's driven this? Is it just the tariffs? Is it other things? Well, I think it's a bit of a combination. I mean, he was really Trump's point person on his other big economic policy agenda, which was the tax cuts that we saw last year. Um, But I think that markets are most concerned about trade and the tariffs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's for a good reason, because just if you're a president, and you want to implement an economic policy, usually you can't just do it yourself. you got to go mm-hmm. through Congress. And uh, you can propose something to Congress. You can try to herd the cats to get them on board. Tax cuts, for example. Exactly. Um, there's no guarantee that what you propose initially will bear even a tangential relationship with mm-hmm. what eventually comes out at the end. That is not true for trade. Right. Um, Constitution allows Congress uh, to set tariffs, but Congress, especially during the Cold War, effectively delegated a lot of that authority to the executive branch. So as what this means in practice is that if you have someone like Trump who has said a lot of things about how he wants, mm. quote unquote, fair trade, um, who said he wants more tariffs, what that means is that as long as the relevant executive branch agencies like the Commerce Department, like the U.S. Uh, trade representative, as long as they go through this investigation process and gives him, give him a thumbs up, he can, it would only be a slight exaggeration to say that the White House can essentially do whatever it wants right. on this front. Um, but Gary, so, Gary Cohen was seen as a, a check on some of that, right? That he would in, inject a degree of um, moderation. Let's say. I mean, after all, he is, okay, he's, he's a Wall Street banker from Goldman Sachs, where he was president and a trader before that. But he's also a well-known Democrat. So he was and, and a free trader and a globalist. Globalist Gary, I believe, is what they used to call him um, in, the, in, in the White House. Did he actually have any influence there did he, to, to stop some of these policies going through in the past? Yes, I, I would argue that he did, um, especially, again, on tariffs, where uh, there are a few voices within the administration. I'm thinking Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Presidential Advisor Peter Navarro. Um, maybe you could even include USTR Robert Lighthizer mm-hmm. in that. Uh, which the were, trade rep, yeah. Exactly, uh, which were very much more tough on trade. And so what what seems to have happened is in that a lot of key conversations that were going on in the West Wing, just that you had 
Gary Cohn, who is much more skeptical of tariffs, not to say that he wouldn't back any of them, but but clearly more kind of your Wall Street, as mm-hmm. you say, like a, a Wall Street kind of centrist Democrat, maybe yeah. even a centrist Republican. And there were some tariffs out last year, right? But they were quite small and seemed very targeted to try and yeah. send a message without really hurting anything, say, in China. It was like it was small beer. Really. Well, well, all administrations. I mean, what we saw last year, I would argue, kind of fits in with the kind of baseline level of tariffs yeah. and anti-dumping, countervailing duties that you saw in Obama and Bush and, you know, going way back. Uh, but you just, Cohn's presence in a lot of these debates, uh, that counted for something. Like mm-hmm. you need somebody as kind of a, a, a counterweight um, to these other voices. And so I think markets were concerned, and rightly so, that now that Cohn is gone, that just the center of gravity of these conversations starts to swing more toward the protectionist wing. And I caveat that, I mean, we'll have to see who he's replaced with. Um, So it's all kind of contingent on that. But as it stands, I think, yeah, markets are right to be worried. And there's a lot of trade actions that are coming up that that could, you know, his his absence could really impact how things shape up. Now, of course, the markets have to deal with the fact they've got a protectionist president with no protection against the protectionism, if I can uh, mangle it that way. Yeah. And I mean, right at a very important point. So on the, you know, the trade front, we've got um, obviously these steel and aluminum tariffs, which are part and parcel of Gary Cohn mm. stepping down. Um, we've also got actions against China on trade, which are uh, likely coming due in the next few weeks, maybe months at most. The renegotiations of NAFTA, renegotiation of Chorus, all right. those started last year, pretty quiet for the most part. But now we're coming up to kind of the end, like of NAFTA. Mm. I mean, we're getting into the presidential election season yeah. in Mexico, um, congressional elections here in the U.S. Right. I mean, that's all due to conclude. So he's stepping down right at the moment where a lot of these things that have been kind of mm. quietly rumbling along in the background. I mean, they're going to make noises very quickly right. now. Okay, all that on 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 what happens with the White House, the administration, the economy is one thing. The other thing I think our listeners would love to know is, you know, here's a former. Number two at Goldman Sachs, who's now, after a year, leaving the White House. What does he do next? So he's a Democrat who went into a Republican administration. Can he find a role for himself in politics now, Gary Cohen, do you think, Chris? I think potentially he could. I mean, there's lots of rumors, reports that he's looking for some sort of higher office. And I, I would say more broadly, he has threaded this very interesting line where he's kind of on good terms, I would argue, with both Republicans and Democrats, where obviously he's working for, he's been working for a Republican administration. But he's also, there's this narrative that's sort of developed around him that's friendly toward Democrats as well, which is that he sensed some sort of civic duty to stop the worst impulses of the Trump administration from itself. And he's discharge his duties well, and now he's going off to different things. Right. So I would say he's in good graces. But I mean, really, I cover Washington, but you cover Wall Street. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on where he might go. Yeah, if we look at if we look at Wall Street. So here's a guy who really wanted to be CEO of Goldman Sachs. He had a little bit of a taste of it when Lloyd Blankfein, the current CEO, uh, was off sick with uh, cancer for a while. So he, he likes the idea of running it. Um, but there's nowhere really for him to go. Um, Lloyd Blankfein, understandably, has found a couple of other people to be his number two. Um, that's not likely to change, I would assume. You never know. Morgan Stanley doesn't need a, a new guy. JP Morgan doesn't need, well, arguably, they need. They may, they may need someone, but I think they've already discovered who they want to take over from Diamond, Jamie Diamond in the next few years. The one bank that maybe needs someone is Wells Fargo, where Tim Sloan is still battling the crisis 
that came from the, the fake account scandal when he took over after um, the previous CEO had to leave. Tim Sloan probably still has a chance to stay there. But also, I mean, the biggest thing about Gary Cohen, the risk there is that here's a guy who, A, he was purely an investment banker and a trader, and Wells Fargo does that, but not much. But also, you know, during the tax cut debate, Cohen showed himself to be pretty much tone deaf to what your average man or woman on the street earns, how they spend their money, what things cost. That doesn't make him a particularly good candidate to run what is one of the biggest retail banks in the country. So I'm not sure he'd go there. Could he, if you look at what, say, Goldman Sachs uh, CEOs and executives have done in the past, Hank Paulson was Treasury Secretary, having been uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs. He basically stepped out of the limelight at 61 or so after the 2008 elections, set up an, uh, an institute, and is going to China a lot. Um, who else have we got uh, from there? Well, John Corzine left as CEO and then ran for senator and then governor. Uh, and then when he uh, stopped being governor, he went and ran MF Global, which he then ran into the ground because of too many dodgy trades. So look, it's not as if he's got a, an obvious place to go at the moment. Maybe he could do something that is very unusual uh, for a Wall Street executive and do something that has absolutely nothing to do with Wall Street. Go and be a teacher. Go do something else. Why not? So why does he set up the Gary Cohn Institute for Free Trade? Dude, that is an idea we should sell to him. Seriously, the guy's got lots of money. Chris, thanks very much for coming on and talking us through that. Um, I'm sure we'll be having more discussions about Trump's economic policies and about where Gary Cohen goes. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Italy's general election last weekend has put an anti-establishment party and a hard-right party centre stage. The Five Star Movement and the League between them captured around 50% of the vote. To explain how this happened and what happens next... We're joined by our Milan-based correspondent, Lisa Yuka. Lisa, great to have you back on the show. It's been a while. Last time, I think, you were still based in Hong Kong. Welcome to the show. Indeed. Thank you. So so tell me, um, especially as someone who returned to Italy within the past year after years of living abroad, how did we get to this point where, I mean, we all know, or many of us know that Italian elections often produce hung parliaments. Uh, there have been a lot of governments over the past 60, 70 years, far more than most other West European countries. So was the fact there isn't a, a, an outright winner is no surprise. But how is it that these two parties have, have basically trounced the other, the more traditional parties, far more than has happened in Germany or Austria or the UK or even France? I mean, what's so different about, about Italy? So, Anthony, we certainly have seen a seismic shift in Italian politics because although, as you rightly pointed out, hung parliaments are not um, a new feature uh, in Italian elections, um, what is new is that the winners of the elections are both radical parties that uh, um, have played, let's say, in the case of Five Star, have played no role in government. And in the case of the League, I mean, the other winner of the elections, if you want, um, have put forward very strong uh, anti-immigration lines that, you know, have not really featured in Italian governments up until now. So uh, why is that? Uh, certainly, as in some other countries around the world, there is a large mass of people that feels left behind. I mean, we have to remember that Italy has gone through a very, very deep recession. Uh, we're obviously coming out of that quite strongly, if we look at the data. Um, growth data show that Italy is growing at its fastest in, in nearly 10 years, but certainly not everybody is benefited from that 
there is a very, very strong economic divide still between North and South, and unemployment is extremely high for, for such a large European country, especially youth unemployment, which is about 30%. So um, all of these factors, in particular the economic perception or the perception of, let's say, feeling left behind, as I said, have played a role in fueling anger and frustration. Okay, I mean, you talk about North and South, and that's often been the way that, that, that I mean, certainly I've, when I've looked at Italy, I've thought, okay, there, there is the North and the South are quite separate from each other. Um, the League, that the hard-right party used to be called the Northern League, and is now trying to appeal more nationally. And I, from what I read, Five Star got a lot of votes in the South. So is it very much, are these two parties a North and the South party, would you say? I would say that the Five Star is well, has turned out as more of a national party. I mean, right. the League did try to appeal to a broader um, base than its traditional uh, northern base, and it did win some votes as far as Calabria, which is, you know, at the far south. But uh, Five Star has turned out to be the real uh, national party, I would say, and it has also the largest share of votes with 32.5%. Um, the League, however, has managed to go beyond if you want its stronghold in the wealthy Lombardy and Veneto regions by playing very strongly the anti-immigration card. As you know, Italy is at the forefront of the immigration crisis in Europe. Yeah. These visions, you know, these pictures and video footages of lots of immigrants, lots of refugees arriving daily on boats across the Mediterranean have really um, impressed themselves upon voters who fear for their job safety, who fear for their economic safety, and the League has capitalized on that. Yeah. I mean, certainly just looking at, at some of the things that have been said, the, the, uh, the leader of the party, of the League party, Matteo Salvini, has talked about, and tell me if I'm getting this right, a mass cleansing street by street of immigrants. Now, whether he really means... As we were probably thinking here, mass cleansing, you think ethnic cleansing, I, I, I don't know, but it, it certainly sounds that way. Um, but so, I mean, is, is that how far he's going? And if, if he is, can, can, a, can any of the other parties, uh, even Five Star, consider jumping into bed to form a government with this kind of party? Okay, for, for a start, I mean, I would say that uh, the League is um, not alone. We have to remember that they are part of a coalition, a centre-right coalition, which also comprises, for instance, Silvius Berlusconi's Forza Italia. And uh, the predictions just before the election were for Berlusconi's party to emerge as the strongest, if you want, mm. component of this centre-right coalition. But um, the surprise factor was that Salvini emerged, um, uh, well, came first, basically, and now can stake a claim to become prime minister if, you know, they manage to form a government. Um, you know, he likes to use colourful language, uh, but it does look up to people like Orban uh, in Hungary or Putin in Russia as examples. Um, and this is certainly concerning. Right. Okay, so, so what do we think happens next then? So obviously there's going to be talks about coalitions. Um, what are the limitations for any of these governments? I looked at one of your pieces, for example, before the election, you're talking about the country's huge debt load, despite the improving economy. It's got, leaving Greece aside, it's got the worst debt to GDP ratio of, of any country in the European Union. So that's got to be a, a, put a, a, a big stranglehold on what any coalition uh, government could do, surely. 
Yes, certainly. This could be maybe the only reassuring factor for, if you want, you know, foreign investors and markets uh, from the outcome of the election, because it is true. I mean, the debt straitjacket uh, is going to constrain any government. So even if we were to envisage an all-radical government, which at the moment is, on, is not on the card, but let's say if a five-star and the league were to join forces, they would have the numbers to govern. But it's unclear whether that combination would work. Um, but in any case, I mean, even if we have to, if we were to conceive the worst case scenario, if you want, um, this government would have to deal with the, uh, the massive debt uh, load that Italy faces. I mean, it's a very narrow path for Italy in terms of what it can do in terms of uh, fiscal spending. And today, the European Commission, for instance, reminded that there are a number of countries um, which have still shaky economic fundamentals and put Italy um, you know, quite high on the risk list. So whoever becomes prime minister will have to deal with the same problems that uh, past governments had to deal with. And final quick question for you. Um, what do you think the chances are of uh, another election later this year if they can't get a coalition government sorted out? So um, it is a possibility, of course, but um, we have seen that in the past uh, Italy has been able to find very creative solutions to avoid um, snap elections. And this is because all these new parliamentarians, we're talking nearly a thousand people, um, have hit the jackpot by yeah. having been elected. I mean, they'll earn you know, a good pot of money, they'll have influence, uh, and uh, traditionally what we've seen in the past is that they do, do like to stay in parliament and avoid election as much as possible. Um, the other thing is, if we were unable to form uh, a coalition government, let's say in the next six to eight months, um, and, and we were to go to snap elections. I mean, the result may just be a reinforcement of um, the League and Five Star because right. the PD has been, and the PD is the, the central left government of former um, leader Matteo Renzi, has been completely crushed. So it's, it's difficult to think that the traditional parties can be rebuilt in six to eight months and we can have a completely different um, right. electoral outcome. Right, Lisa, thanks very much for talking us through that. It's fascinating, I'm sure, given what's been happening so far. We'll be back for more. Thanks again, Lisa. Much appreciated. Thank you. And for our final segment this week, we're going to hand over to our colleagues in Asia to discuss what on earth the world miners do about striking the next deal. Over to you guys. Thanks, Anthony. Now, in the past few years, the mining industry has gone from boom to bust in pretty spectacular fashion where it once used to do $100 billion-plus deals, or at least talk about them. The focus has very much changed to debt reduction and being more sober and more responsible. Clara Ferrara-Marquez, who covers the mining and natural resources industry for Breaking Views, thinks that a certain shift is underway, though, as companies maybe have to think about how to replenish their portfolios again. Clara, what's going on for the really big miners at the moment, the BHP Billitons, Rio Tintos and Glencores of the world? Well, it's probably useful to go back a little bit in time and pick up some of those points that you mentioned. I mean, the mining industry came out of the boom years where they were spending hand over fist. They were building new mines. They were making dramatic acquisitions, some of which ended very badly indeed with significant write-downs. If I think of the acquisition of Alcan by Rio Tinto or the acquisition of Riversdale, coal miner in Mozambique again by Rio Tinto, all of that ended quite badly. 
after that, there was a period of uh, sackcloth cloth and ashes, and that has meant dramatic cost-cutting, real concentration on reducing debt, and absolutely no deals at all. A lot of the empire-building CEOs left pretty much in the space of a year and were, with the exception of Glencore, replaced with probably technocrats, I think would be a fair description, really concentrating on the process, getting as much as possible out of the ground as cheaply as possible and returning as much of the excess cash as you can to your shareholders. That's so, a real change for the industry. So that all sounds great. You know, if I'm a shareholder, why would I ever want that situation to change? You know, companies are chastened, bosses are no longer empire building, lots of that money is coming straight back into my pockets. You know, what's not to like? Well, there's certainly a lot to like, um, but you have to think in decades if you're um, a long-term mining investor, and certainly if you're a mining CEO, you're digging stuff out of the ground at the very basic level, and that stuff's going to run out. So you have to think constantly about how you are going to replenish it. Are you going to do it by exploring more? Are you going to do it by buying a company that perhaps has an interesting project? That was really out of the question during the sort of penitence years, as it were, um, then really came down dramatically. Even it was down to maintenance, which is, you know, just keeping your mind ticking over. Now that they're throwing up a lot of cash, I mean, some really impressive margins out there. Anglo-American is a a fantastic case, and they have half the assets that they had when Marcus Farney took over at the start of 2013, and they they have both higher productions and higher margins than they reported in 2017. That's all great. Just a lot of money a lot of money that eventually you will need to allocate, not just to your shareholders, but for the future. And so what do you think is out there? What are the kind of potential targets if people are going back on the warpath? Well, they're going back on the warpath, but, you know, they are still very cognizant of what happened. And, you know, money is coming back into mining from the funds. But there, too, people have long memories. And there isn't an awful lot out there, which is a painful situation. Um, And on both sides, I mean, in terms of exploration, people haven't invested on it for quite some time, so there's no very easy pickings to go to. A lot of the investment at the moment is in um, exploring around your current mines, adjacent areas, so that's sort of a relatively easy thing to do, but, you know, you're not really adding the massive tonnage. In terms of M&A, then it becomes much harder in part because of the experience of the boom years and in part because of the easy pickings have been taken. Now that commodity prices are back up, multiples are up again. Companies like First Quantum's perennial M&A target now trading at a premium. That makes it much harder to sell a deal to your shareholders, even if it's a commodity that they want. And you do, I mean, in the piece you wrote for us recently, you do mention First Quantum as one of these um, notable potential targets, a slightly smaller mining company that could be in play. Why would First Quantum in particular be an attractive target, even if it is, as you say, trading at quite a high multiple? There are two things about First Quantum that make it both attractive and challenging. Probably the, the, the single biggest is that it's not just a copper producer, but it has one of the largest copper mines to be commissioned in recent years, Copper Panama absolutely phenomenal asset that a lot of people want to get their hands on. There is also something of a generational change. The three co-founders who set it up in 1996, one of them has already retired. The two others, you know, thinking about, or these people speculate that they might be thinking about moving on. All of that is, you know, start you start creating a situation that becomes interesting. But 
it's expensive. It has assets that um, make people a little uneasy, and particularly the African assets that they have. And perhaps the founders don't leave, want to leave quite as fast as people expect. That's interesting. And it's fascinating that we're talking here about, I believe, a $12 billion company, which in the boom years, I don't think miners would have got out of bed for $12 billion <laughs> acquisition targets, right? And now that that's the sort of extent of their, their ambitions. Anyway, it looks like we're at a very interesting juncture in the development of the global mining industry. Clara, thanks very much for talking to us about this. Uh, and now back to my colleagues in New York. Thank you. Great. Thanks for that, guys. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Lisa Yucca, Clara Ferrara Marquez, Quentin Webb and Chris Bedor for joining me. Kudos also to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views from on iTunes and please do share your opinions about our show. And join us again next week for another edition.